You know, sometimes when we, what we consider as a routine could bring about unexpected repercussions. And the message today is a repercussion of something that happened before we reach this passage here. So we must go back to trace what actually happened so that we are able to understand how this evolves into where we are today. And you remember in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, Jesus healed the paralytic man on the Sabbath. And of course, the critics charged him for breaking the law of Sabbath. You remember how Jesus answered? Jesus answered, My father is working until now, and I am working. And Jesus was alluding to the fact that God continues to work to sustain the universe he created. And he continues to bring about salvation for mankind, and God continues to work, and Jesus continues to work. So Jesus did not break the Sabbath law by healing the paralytic man and tell him to take up the, the, the pallet, to take up the bed and, and walk. But that answer brought about another accusation that Jesus blasphemed against God by considering himself to be equal with God because Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working. And it appears that Jesus and God the Father are equal and they were accusing Jesus of being blaspheming against God. So you remember last week, Jesus launched into the teaching about the equality of God the Father and God the Son in the triune God. Now in verse 30 in today's passage, in verse 30, if you look at a slide, it says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Here Jesus begins by stating that He is in sin perfectly with the Father. Jesus follows the Father's example in all He does. And you remember in chapter 5, in verse 19, Jesus mentioned that. In verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus was in sync perfectly with God the Father. So the judgment pronounced by the Son is the judgment passed by the Father, which is without error because the Father knows what is inside every human heart. Okay, case closed. Is that enough to satisfy the critiques? Well, no. Now, knowing that the critiques are still unconvinced, Jesus calls up witnesses to testify for Him, much like in a court case. And that's in verses 31 to 40. Now let's read 31 to 40 and see how Jesus calls up witnesses. As you read them, you can tell who are the witnesses that are being called up, beginning in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that 
the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamb, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus called witnesses to testify his credential. The first witness he called is God the Father, the testimony of God the Father. Verses 31 and 32. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bear witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. What Jesus is saying here is that when you sign a legal document, you can't be the signer and the witness of the same document. You cannot witness your own signature. It has to be from another person. Jesus said that if you do that, then what you have signed is not true. Not saying that Jesus' statement is false or Jesus' testimony is false. He's just basically saying that it is not valid, neither credible if you testify for yourself. And it is not acceptable. Not a good practice. You need accountability. But what should you do? You need another. So verse 32 says, there is another who bear witness about me, and that testimony he bears about me is true. He didn't mention by name, but he's implying that that testimony is God the Father. That he views his own weakness as simply an extension of the Father's weakness. Since he always faithfully represented the Father's will. That's the first witness he called, God the Father. And later on in verse 37, Jesus will expand on that to tell you the detail of the Father's testimony. But for now, that's sufficient. God the Father. The second witness is called is John the Baptist. Verses 33 to 35, it says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say this thing so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamb, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Here Jesus is reminding us that he calls the testimony of John the Baptist to bear witness. And if you recall in chapter 1, when we introduced John the Baptist, you remember John the Baptist came to bear witness to the light, and Jesus is the light in chapter 1, verse 7. And John the Baptist was bearing four witnesses for the light. The first, 
he identified Jesus to be the long-expected, long-predicted Messiah in verse 22 of chapter 1. And secondly, Jesus announced, uh, uh, John announced that Jesus is the Lamb of God in verse 29. And thirdly, John announced Jesus to be the baptizer with the Holy Spirit in verse 33. He says, I baptize with water. That's not enough. That's repentance. But you need to believe in Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Son of God in chapter 1, verse 34. Now, in verse 34, it says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say this so that you may be saved. Why did Jesus call upon John the Baptist as a witness to testify that he is the Son of God when God the Father has already testified him to be aligned, to be perfectly in sin with God the Father? Jesus doesn't need human testimony to confirm his credential. See, for God is self-existent. He's the great I am. He's not dependent on anything for his existence. Unlike human beings, we need a creator. Jesus calls up John the Baptist to testify because his testimony carries weight with those who recognize him as a messenger of God. They enjoy listening to Him. And when they listened to Him, it, it was the hope of Jesus that John the Baptist will also point them to Jesus as the coming Messiah, hoping that they might believe in Him and obtain salvation. And that's why John the Baptist is chosen as one of the weaknesses. But don't get it wrong. Verse 35 reminds us that John the Baptist is not the light. He is the lamp a burning and shining lamp in verse 35. And you, you enjoy Him for a while in His light. That's why you came to Him. But He points you guys, the Jewish leaders, to me, to Jesus. And I am the light of the world. John is not the light. He's the lamp. Jesus is the light. John the Baptist is the light bearer. And this is perfectly Align with the purpose of the Gospel of John. When the Apostle John wrote in, in John chapter 20, verse 31, that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And John the Baptist came and testified that Jesus is the Son of God. He was called by Jesus to be a witness. This is the second witness. Who is the third witness? The third testimony is Jesus' own works. Jesus' own works testify for him in verse 36 says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. What is that? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What are the works? These works include all of Jesus' activity, His miracles, His life of perfect obedience, His work of redemption on the cross. You see, the Father testified for the Son by giving Him the work of salvation. John chapter 3, 
verse 17, after he mentioned that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' own works testified that he is the son of God. But you know what? The father goes one step further in verse 37 says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. What was the father testifying personally for Jesus? Well, it's very clear that his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, was alluding to the baptism of Jesus when the dove ascended from heaven, the Holy Spirit like a dove ascending uh, upon Jesus, and the voice came from heaven saying, this is my son, my beloved, hear him, follow him. God the Father was testifying personally for Jesus that he is the son of God. And it happened in his transfiguration as well even though the record of the transfiguration is not recorded in the Gospel of John, but is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. But both times, voice from heaven seeing that this is my beloved son, the father testifying for his own son, God the Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. You know, as we look at the testimony of God the Father, the Jewish leaders, they were not there to witness the Father's testimony. Jesus said, you have not heard, you, the form you have never seen, and how do you believe me? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 reminds us that God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets at many times and in many ways. In God's way, they were exposed to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And Jesus will testify Himself that He is sent by God, that He is the Son of God. And the Jewish leaders, if they only obey and respect Jesus' words, they will be able to understand that Jesus is the Son of God but they do not have His Word abiding in them because they do not believe the one whom God the Father has sent. They do not believe that Jesus is sent by God and then He is the Son of God. They do not believe in the incarnate Word of God, Jesus, the Son of God. Even though Jesus is the fulfillment of all the revelations given by God through the prophets, but they do not believe that. It's a the third witness, the third testimony. The fourth testimony in verses 39 to 40 is the testimony of the Scriptures. It says, you, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The testimony of the Scriptures make perfect sense. That as you read God's Word, God's revealed Word, you will find God. But remember, 
the audience are already knowledgeable Bible teachers. These are Jewish religious leaders. And with all their painstaking search for the Scriptures, it never leads them to Jesus. They, they know the Word. They search the Word. They understand the original language and the context and all that. But the understanding, the academic research of God's Word never leads them to salvation in Jesus Christ. Very much like some cultural Christians, very much like those in the secular academic world who study the religious philosophy of religions, and, and sometimes they are better exegetes, expositors, and sometimes they are better scholars in terms of understanding the, the, the source, the origin of the language, of the culture, but that never lead them to salvation in Jesus Christ because they study the Scriptures for the wrong reason. And for the Jewish leaders, they study the Scriptures to earn eternal life through their own efforts, through works, through the law, and not trusting Jesus for eternal life. And it's the same thing for you and me, that you can sit in the church for 30 years, 40 years, and go through worships and join different small groups and join different activities, but that doesn't make you born-again Christian. That doesn't make you a child of God. You have to open your hearts, personally receive Jesus to be your personal Savior for the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God the Father. That's what makes you a Christian. Just be exposed to Scriptures and able to study together with other people do not make you a Christian. That's the first, that's the fourth weakness. And finally, we will jump to verses 45 to 47 to call out the fifth weakness, the testimony of Moses. It says, There is one who accuses you, Jesus said, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, in these short verses here, Moses testifies for Jesus, but he also exposes their unbelief. Okay, for the sake of making testimony here, we will consider Moses' accusation later, and we'll just look at Moses' testimony. And in verse 46, he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. He testified of Jesus. And where is that? Well, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that we often alluded to when we give the testimony of Moses. Moses pointed the people to the coming prophet and urged them to listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And that is pointing to the coming of the Messiah. Moses testified for Jesus. You know, five witnesses are being presented to the religious leaders. And you may be wondering why so many weaknesses. How, how much more do we need? God the Father is called 
to witness John the Baptist because people enjoy listening to him for the sake of their salvation. And he will point them to Jesus. Jesus' own works testify for him. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and Moses. Why? There's only one answer, that they need so many weaknesses. It is because of their unbelief. And how many more weaknesses do we need for the critiques to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God? You know, we often hear people challenging Christians or pastors, just call God to stand in front of me and I will believe. It is as simple as that. And I will say, well, if I call God here, then worship me. I am God. How do we help people of their unbelief? What is the nature of unbelief? In the New Testament scriptures, two passages I want to share with you. Maybe it reveals who you are and where you are with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, Matthew 12, 38 to 40, it says, And some of the scribes and Pharisees answer him, saying, Teacher, Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. Perform a miracle. And Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, for a miracle, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then Jesus explained in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of God be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the greatest miracle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no other greater miracle than that. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can pull all sorts of uh, uh, names and, and credi credible giving you footnotes and, and, and people to impress you. It will not help you to believe because the greatest miracle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second passage I want to share with you about unbelief is Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 31, but it is in the context of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember the rich man was living a luxurious life, disregard God, do not believe in God, and Lazarus was a beggar. He, he was begging for food, but he believed in God. So when they both died, Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham, which is in heaven, and the rich man was tormenting in the fire of hell. And he said to Abraham, and said, can you send Lazarus to go back, to go back to earthly life and to testify to my five brothers? I have five brothers who are still living. That the fact that Lazarus came back from death as a resurrected person will speak volume about the credibility of heaven and hell, that it is true, and they will believe. And in verse 31, in that context, verse 31, Abraham replied, the rich man, and said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
Abraham was saying that if they do not believe what Moses has prophesied, the prophet that is greater than me, and, and listen to him, which is the Messiah, if they do not believe the prophetic utterances from the prophets of old, that Christ will be born in Bethlehem and he will grow up in Nazareth and, and he will come to die for the sins of the world. If they don't even believe in this teaching, even Lazarus coming back from death will not convince them. What is the message? Jesus' message is that a heart of unbelief will always conjure up excuses. And in a second point, second main point, Jesus will expose the unbelief more, more unbelief of the religious leaders. So let's look at the second point. Jesus exposes the critiques. Verses 41 to 47. Let's look at the passage. Let me read to you. 41. I, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus exposes four kinds of unbelief in the religious leaders among the Jews. First of all, they do not love God. They do not love God. Verses 41 to 42, I do not receive glory from people but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus says that he refuses to conform to the people's expectation of a political Messiah who will free them from the bondage of the Roman Empire and to establish the Davidic dynasty. And that will please them. And, and they, Jesus may receive a standing ovation but Jesus chooses to do the Father's will, which is to give His life as a ransom for many. Remember in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And in verse 42, He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus knows the human heart. And you would remember in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, recorded that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to the people because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about men, for he himself knew what was in man. Not only he knew all people, but he knew what was in them. Jesus knew. He can discern that there is no love for God in them. Otherwise, they would have accepted Jesus as the one sent by God. There's no love in them. There's unbelief. Secondly, they refuse to receive Jesus 
Verse 43, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. They refuse to receive Jesus. The people rather follow a false Messiah who has no credential but his own claim. They rather follow that kind of a Messiah. And brothers, sisters, and friends, and it is nothing new. Because in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 says, For the time is coming when all people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul has reminded the young pastor, Timothy, that it happens all the time. Including modern men and women, we are attracted by tabloids and mysticisms and New Age movements, but we shunt truth. And that's what happened to many modern men and women. Because truth pierces their ego. Truth makes them uncomfortable. They refuse to receive Jesus because Jesus is the truth. And thirdly, their unbelief, they crave human affirmation. In verse 44, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? To accept Jesus would have won them the glory from God, but loses esteem from their peers. Now, let me remind you, this is still a very prominent reason why people reject Jesus. Peer pressure is real, not just among teenagers. It's all across age brackets. Peer pressure is real because we live in community. We live among people. They crave human affirmation in their unbelief. And finally, in verses 45 to 47, that we kind of alluded in the first major point now, we go into more detail. It says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, that is Moses. See, Jesus is not the chief witness against them. Jesus comes to save and not to judge. Their chief prosecutor will be Moses. On whom you have set your hope, they greatly admire Moses, but Moses will also be their prosecutor. Verse 46 says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And we just shared with you that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses wrote of Jesus. But look at verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus Moses' writings continue to expand the Old Testament laws, and through the Old Testament laws and sacrifice and practices, they all point to Jesus, they are all fulfilled in Jesus. As Matthew 5, verse 17 reminds us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I come to fulfill them. A great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce reminds us that the testimony of Moses and Jesus are so closely interact, interacted, interrelated that 
to believe one is to believe the other, and to refuse one is to refuse the other. Moses indicted them, even though they have great admiration for him. Are the testimonies enough to convince the Jewish leaders? Apparently not, because the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders will continue to escalate until they crucify Jesus towards the end of the chapter of the Gospel of John. But you know what? It is enough. It is more than enough for you and me who believe in Jesus. And we are like Thomas, confronted by Jesus saying, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hands and place it in my sight to find the scar of the pierced sight. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And we who believe in Jesus, very much like Thomas saying, we've encountered Jesus, we believe that he's the son of God, and we just cry out, my Lord and my God. You know, today, unbelief is still very common. They don't love God, and it is manifested in the hardness of their hearts. They refuse to receive Jesus, and it is manifested in the stereotyping of faith and religious people. They crave human affirmation, which is manifested in giving in to peer pressure. And they are accused by Moses that the law is not sufficient. The law, in fact, will accuse you because none of us will be able to meet all the requirements of the law. If you break one law, you break all the laws. And it is manifested in the working of the conscience. Though tainted, but the conscience will accuse you for those not working under the law. So today, my message to you is Jesus' identity is confirmed by credible witnesses proving beyond any doubt that He is truly the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. But the religious leaders choose not to follow Jesus. You know, in my preparation of this passage, I keep asking myself, what has it to do with me? What has it to do with me? I am a believer. I'm a follower of Jesus. And we can ask this question. What kind of grievances have Jesus suffered that compels him to call up so many weaknesses, credible weaknesses? Is there a need for that? Well, there is no such need in heaven. Because in heaven, he is surrounded by seraphim and angels crying out, holy, 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 to the triune God. In the heavens, God speaks and everything comes into being. The whole creation obeys God's will. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiworks. Only in our sin-tainted world that the Son of God has to empty Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on the cross. Only in the sin-tainted world that God's will is not respected, is not working. You see, Christianity is the only religion that keeps highlighting the fact that our Savior died a violent death on the cross. And we observe Good Friday every year and communion every month and we keep preaching about the cross of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And make sure we remember. And some wonders, is Jesus too weak to be of any good? Since He is omnipotent, He is all-powerful, why can't He recreate the whole universe? Just, just destroy the sinful humans like we discard the expired food. After all, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, 23, mentioned that these people, these evil people, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Just discard them like expired food. Verse 23 in chapter 1 of Romans says, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, creating God in their own image by, by crafting into woods and stones instead of the true God. Why save them? It's so much cleaner to start all over again than to try to repair a damaged good because they will always be scarred. Why? Why is God portrayed like the father of the prodigal son that when he saw the son who squandered away everything that was given to him, the inheritance, and he finally returned and the father just ran and embraced him and kissed him. And when the son gave the rehearsed speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can get to the part, treat me as one of your hired servants, the father interrupted and said to the servants, bring quickly the best rope and put it on him and put a ring on his hand as a sign that he has my authority, he is my son, and shoe on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. In a Middle Eastern culture, you will ask, what about the dignity of the father? What about the lesson that the prodigal son needed to learn? What if he does it again? Are you too soft? That's a typical Middle Eastern individual looking at the story will think in that perspective. What if? But there is no what if. There's only for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Even if I mention this verse 
in Luke chapter 15, you remember the lyrics of the song of Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Very much taken from Luke 15 on the parable of the prodigal son. There's no what if, because God loves. There's only one answer. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There's no what if. There's only one response. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are children of God. There's no what if, because God loves. There's only one response. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I think listening to this passage as believers, seeing how Jesus defended himself by calling witnesses to prove that he is a son of God. For you and me, as we respond to this passage, is see what kind of love the Father has given us. And he calls you to respond like Thomas when he finally believed and he cried out, My Lord, my God. My Lord, my God, oh my God, oh my God, what a love, what a love. How would you respond to Jesus' credential today? I hope you will utter the same proclamation when Thomas finally believed that you and I would say, my Lord, Am I God? Do you know what it means when you say, my Lord? It means you are my master and I am your slave. Whatever you say, I obey. Do you know what it means to call my God? It means I am created. I am your creature. And I do your will because you are my designer. You design me and you have given me a manual how to live and how to glorify you. And I live accordingly. A simple proclamation, but a long-lasting implication. My Lord, my God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come together as your believer, sometimes listening to the message from a distance because it doesn't apply to us. It applies to the religious leaders and it applies to those who are critics of Jesus and who are opposing Jesus. But Lord, we find ourselves in the same passage. And this morning I pray that even as we learn and listen to this same passage that we have heard at other times and in other platforms, 
that we truly will come to the conviction that we need to submit ourselves to your Lordship, that we will need to do your will because you created us and you know us. And it is only when we do things and live lives according to your will that we find the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction and contentment in you. And Lord, if we have been away, if we have been worshipping from a distance, if we have not been prompt in responding to you, Lord, I pray that you will convict us and bring us to the alignment of who we are today and cry out with John, behold, what a wonderful love that we have experienced in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.